completely reasonable for somebody to be reading the news and kind of rolling their eyes and saying, been there, you know, we heard about the metaverse, we heard about NFTs and blockchain. Why should I trust Silicon Valley that this is really the next wave of the future? But there wasn't an executive order about the metaverse. Welcome to Workmorphous Wired, where we dive deep into the future of work and explore the transformative impact of AI and other emerging tech through conversations with thought leaders, policy experts, and industry innovators. I'm your host, Emily Fabiano, and today we have a very special guest with us, Alex Cotran. Alex is founder and CEO of the AI Education Project, also known as AIEDU. With a background in politics and community outreach, Alex offers a truly unique perspective at the crossroads of AI, public policy, and education. Inspired by his parents, who are both educators and motivated by the lack of AI education in schools, Alex embarked on a mission to bring AI education to every student. AIEDU is a nonprofit backed by companies like Google and OpenAI. This year alone, they have trained over 7,000 teachers in AI concepts and classroom tools. Today, we'll discuss equitable AI, education, and how to prepare the next generation for an AI-driven workforce. Welcome, Alex. Hey, thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. I think your perspective is going to be really unique and valuable for our audience, which includes a lot of leaders in public policy who are looking to learn more about AI and may not have a technical background. So before we get started, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and perhaps share an exciting project that you're currently working on? I think you did a great job with my introduction. I mean, I, would, I guess what I would add is, you know, I've been in the AI space since 2015. I was, you know, as part of the, the Obama administration, when I was in DC, and as the administration was coming to a close, a lot of my colleagues were going out west to various technology companies that ended up being pioneers in artificial intelligence. And so I was fortunate to just have lots of mentors in my life who were kind of pointing me towards, you know, the time in 2015 was really when machine learning was starting to, I would say, reach economic maturity. It was, uh, it was being widely deployed by Fortune 500 companies um, for like a relatively specific set of use cases, but it was very clear that this was, a, this was an impactful technology that was moving out of the realm of futurism into this really practical tool that had pretty broad and, and, and widespread capabilities. And so I just was, I was part of, you know, like what at the time was a relatively small circle of of folks who were really, you know, following the the explosion of ML and also, you know, almost projecting out what will the next five to 10 years look like. And it was almost a foregone conclusion that artificial intelligence was going to transform the way that we live and work. There were terms bandied about like the fourth industrial, it would, it was the harbinger of the fourth industrial revolution. What I realized is, you know, because I have roots in, in Ohio and I would be spending a lot of time, you know, with, with my mom who teaches at Akron Public Schools, um, you know, the conversations that I was a part of in Silicon Valley were not happening in the parts of the country that were supposedly, you know, the most at risk. You know, Akron, Ohio is actually literally on the list that the Brookings Institute put together of cities that are most vulnerable to technology-driven automation and job displacement. So really, AIEDU was born from this frustration about, you know, if the future of work is going to change so much, shouldn't the future workers be part of this conversation? Like, why aren't we talking to high school students? You know, it's great that thought leaders on LinkedIn are, are, are sharing their perspectives, but, you know, high school students aren't on LinkedIn. And the more we dug into it, the more we found that 
you know, in schools, in high schools and middle schools today, there were very few learning opportunities about artificial intelligence, you know, let alone even just sort of career readiness and sort of like, you know, a modern take on what career pathways look like. Um, and so that's what we've been working on for the last five or so years is how do we actually bring these conversation, conversations and knowledge to, to the kids who really need to have that knowledge most. And then obviously in the last year with the explosion of language models and generative AI, it's more tangible than ever before. Great. Thank you, Alex. It's really inspiring to hear your background and how you got into the field of AI through some of these conversations with educators like your parents and your, and your mom working at Akron Public Schools. So you've previously mentioned that when you started AIEDU, only about a dozen of the 14,000 school districts in the U.S. had some form of AI education. What is the status of AI education in K-12 schools today? I would say it's not terribly better. I mean, I think the difference is that, let's say two years ago, for most school leaders, AI education wasn't on their radar. I think today, every school in the country is intersecting with artificial intelligence in some way, primarily through, frankly, kids using chat GPT to cheat on homework assignments and schools needing to come up with some plan, you know, and like every school is faced with a decision whether they've, maybe they've banned chat GPT, maybe they've expressly allowed it and need to implement an academic integrity policy. And for a lot of others, they're in this sort of no man's land of, well, it's not banned. It's not necessarily allowed. We know kids are using it. We know teachers are using it and they're sort of existing in this limbo, but kind of regardless of where they fall on that spectrum, it's something that is really clear and present on the minds of administrators. And, and it's also, I think, you know, increasingly educators are starting to see the potential value that language models can have on, on their work as, as educators and, on, and sort of improving the quality of their instruction and helping them to automate some of the more rudimentary parts of, of being a teacher. So I would say gaining a lot of traction, AIEDU is, is now working with a lot more schools and a lot more places than we were previously. So I, you know, I don't have the specific numbers right now, but you know, there's certainly more schools that are integrating AI than for, you know, when we started, but we've got a lot of work to do. I mean, this is just the very beginning and where we need to end up is, you know, the way, the way I kind of put it is, you know, if you're a sophomore in high school today, whether or not you have sort of foundational AI literacy and some basic proficiency in using AI tools and understanding how to use AI safely and effectively. It's going to be one of the biggest determinants of your success after you graduate high school, like not even college, but even high school. And so that's the challenge that we all face is how do we, you know, in three years, ensure that every student has access to this game changing knowledge. You know, education doesn't have a good track record with making those really rapid evolutions. Right. And it's really exciting that you're working hard to bring that access to AI education to every school. And the, and the progress that you've made since you started AIEDU is, is really impressive. And just the rate of change since 2015. I mean, it's now something that everybody's thinking about, everyone's talking about, because they have to. For those who are new to AIEDU, could you explain a little bit about your curriculum and what sets your approach apart? Yeah, so, you know, we're, we're trying to solve this problem of how do we make sure that every single student in America has access to foundational AI literacy before they graduate high school? So, you know, what is AI literacy? It's really the skills and knowledge that you need to thrive in the age of artificial intelligence. So that really means understanding how AI impacts you as a citizen, as a consumer, and as a worker, and also how can you harness the technology safely and effectively and responsibly you know, whatever pathway it is that you choose. And what's unique about our conception of AI literacy is this is not a vertical that you opt into. Like with the way we talk about STEM and computer science, it's often 
described as a pathway. So, you know, at some point, you know, you decide that I'm a STEM student, I want to take honors algebra or AP calc, and you're on that pathway, or you take an optional computer science class. Those are all really important. But AI literacy is more like using a computer. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're a plumber or a truck driver or a synthetic biologist, you're going to use computers and you're going to need to know how to use technology. And AI is similar. It's sort of a horizontal across what we think is the educational experience. So AIEDU has to solve this problem of how do you build technology curriculum on a topic that to most people feels and seems very arcane and esoteric and design it such that any student and any teacher can integrate it into their classroom. And again, this is not about having a class called Introduction to AI. In the same way that we don't have a class called Introduction to Using Google, you know, like this, these are there, are, there are technology tools that we are now familiar with and they're, they're part of everyday life and AI is moving in that direction. And I think ChatGPT kind of demonstrates what that looks like. So AIDU's approach is create connections to the core subjects. So all of our curriculum is free and it's modular and really focused on activities and project-based learning and easy, flexible ways for teachers to layer in AI learning experiences into what they're already teaching. And so we have, for example, we have 180 warm-up activities that we call AI snapshots, and there's 45 for English, science, math, social studies. We have uh, eight projects on our project dashboard. And these are things like challenging students to train their TikTok algorithm to serve anteater content, by way of example, or designing an AI bill of rights, or doing a podcast interview with ChatGPT. And so they're, they're hands-on and, and they're designed to give students and teachers like just a lot of different entry points um, with a goal of creating that spark of curiosity and excitement that leads to, you know, continuing learning and exploration. That's amazing. And it, it's really cool to hear that the approach is really centered around the student and how that student is going to like to learn and how they're going to want to engage with the content and also making it approachable for, for educators and for everyone along the way. So really exciting to hear. Uh, we talked a little bit about populations at risk. You mentioned Akron being listed by Brookings at as potentially high risk for automation and displacement. So in a previous episode, we talked about a Harvard Business School paper called Navigating the Jagged Technological Frontier about how generative AI can impact performance for management consultants. And one of the findings was really interesting to us. It found that lower performing consultants saw a 43% boost in their performance compared to 19% boost for higher performing consultants. So the key finding was that lower performing consultants can actually stand to benefit more from use of generative AI. I'm curious to hear from your perspective about the classroom. Do you think that AI might have a similar impact potentially on at-risk students in classrooms? That's a really interesting study. I'm glad you mentioned it. The short answer is yes. Even if the technology froze today, we just had access, let's say, to GPT-4 as sort of the current slate of models. They are sufficiently powerful enough to really transform the opportunities and the access to learning supports that other kids take for granted. And like the analogy I use is like when I, you know, my parents both are college educated. When I would go home from school and I needed help reviewing my essay, I had parent GPT. You know, my mom or my dad would read my essay and give me feedback. But if you only have one caregiver or your parents work two jobs, you know, a lot of kids don't have access to those supports at home. And so for them, a personalized tutor can be transformational. That said, the tension is those same students, marginalized, historically underrepresented students, also are the most at risk from the disparate impacts. And so I think it's easy to imagine 
these outcomes that we would intuitively feel are unfair or unjust. And that's why it's very hard to say that this is a good thing or a bad thing. The other issue is we don't know yet whether introducing language models, and I'm, and I'm specifically talking about language models because I think for students, that's most likely going to be the type of AI that they touch themselves. So I think it's pretty clear, like when you graduate high school, you need to know how to use language models in generative AI, like unequivocally, um, no matter what your career path is. It is probably also the case that at some point, if you go early enough, introducing ChatGPT in its current form might be detrimental to learning. And one of the things that we encountered, um, I was debriefing with one of the first teachers that went through one of those trainings and it, was, it had been about six months. And so I was really excited to hear, okay, what are, how are all the ways that you're, you've been using this in your classroom? And she responded, you know, her name's Felika Ross. She's at uh, Akron Early College High School. And she's like, you know, the first couple months, the first couple weeks were amazing that I've never seen my kids more engaged. It was like this amazing thing that I was introducing into the classroom and she had designed some projects they were really successful, but she's, she's like, I don't use it anymore. I don't, I've stopped using my classroom. It's like, well, why, why did you stop? And, and the answer was that she was teaching uh, outlining. So it was like, how do you write an outline? And what she realized was that students were not learning how to write an outline. They were learning how to ask for an outline. And like, that's a, that's a skill, right? Like prompt engineering to get a good outline is, is a valuable skill, but it is not the same skill as understanding how to structure your thoughts and put them onto paper. And I think that is sort of the crux of what we are going to have to navigate as we roll these tools out. Right. Very interesting points about the risk reward and the potential benefits there. I imagine it's a, a big challenge for educators and for folks in the field to figure out what the right balance is between teaching those AI skills and, of course, teaching the foundational skills like writing and critical thinking. You mentioned parent GPT, which I love. Do you have an opinion about when AI should first be incorporated into the classroom? No, and I think we need research for that. I will say that there's also not like one type of AI, right? Like, so if you follow Khan Academy, they released something called Conmigo, built on top of ChatGPT, but it's designed specifically to support learning. And so it'll do things like you'll say, hey, I want to write an outline for this. You know, I, I'm supposed to write an outline for this assignment. And rather than just write the outline for you, it will uh, ask you some probing questions and help you along the way, but it won't give you the answer. So I think that there's a lot of ways that technology itself could evolve and be designed to support learning. But whether Conmigo has been tested enough to even answer that question, I'm not sure yet. I would say that once you start using Google, it's very hard to roll that back. You know, like it's very hard to say somebody like, oh, here's this thing that where you can access all the information in the world. And then if you realize, you know, at some point that actually we probably shouldn't have given kids access to that, you know, like I, I think the cat is out of the bag. And so that's why I would say where I am confident is high school, right? Like we, we know that by the time you're in high school, you're going to have to become a proficient user in the tools. And so probably grade seven and eight as well. Like I think that's really where we're focusing right now is seven through 12. Grade six and earlier is where just there's probably foundational knowledge about AI that we do need to teach, whether it's actually getting them hands-on with, with AI tools is TBD. Right. That makes perfect sense. It's, it's fascinating to hear about tools like Conmigo. I had not heard of that personally, but really interesting. It'll be interesting to see how it evolves and how the interactions kind of evolve to support learning of, over the coming years. So, Alex, you've been influencing national AI education policy discussions, including some recent involvement at the White House. 
I'd love to get your perspective on how leaders can design equitable AI policy. And one of the topics that is really interesting you kind of touched on before is how AI can support teachers by augmenting and and not replacing them. So how can AI policy, whether it's at the district, state, or federal level, empower teachers and educators? As AIEDU, we're not really focused on steering policy. We're not like a think tank. To the extent that we do any advocacy, it's really just spreading the word of AI literacy as a key priority. And that's generally when we are in policy conversations. Where we come to the table is to say, look, it kind of doesn't matter what the policies are. If your plan is to create policies, policies only matter if they are implemented effectively. And to effectively implement policy about AI, people need to understand it. You can't have teachers ensure that students are using the tool safely or using the tool effectively themselves if they don't understand some of the basics about what good or bad use cases are, for example. In terms of policy, there's a lot of there's a lot of questions that need to be answered, right? So it's like one of the things that, that keeps me up at night is effectiveness and measurement. So you know, there are thousands of startups now that are peddling various AI tools. Most of them are built on you know only a small handful full of models. And they're purporting to do stuff like support teachers in the classroom, there's no data to be able to evaluate whether a certain tool is better or worse than another tool. We're essentially relying on these companies to tell us for themselves. And for, you know, for like a a classroom helper that may seem benign enough, but if we start to have tools that are doing things like personalized tutoring, then it really matters if one tool is 50% more effective than another tool, or if one tool has a 35% higher incidence of hallucinations or does or doesn't meet, let's say, some standard for mitigating bias. Um, And so until we have those like clear standards and ways to measure against those standards, I think it's gonna be very hard for schools to really do the procurement that they need. So there's like procurement standards, there's like safety requirements. What people I think really need to wrap their heads around is the smartest people in the world, the people who are building these models cannot explain how the models produce what they produce. Like they're not deterministic models. So, you know, we have intuition about how they produce certain things, but it's not so simple as, oh, we create some quick policies and suddenly we've solved it. It's like, this is going to be a constantly evolving space. And there's very few people that have the expertise to guide their organizations through this. And so that's why, again, I really fall back on, you know, whatever the long-term or medium-term strategy is with regard to policy, we have to bolster the internal understanding and subject matter expertise so that various organizations can not just implement policies, but also help to guide policies because we shouldn't rely on policymakers in DC to figure out how the education system needs to evolve and how these tools should be used safely. Like this, this is, and this is really where I think our advocacy does anchor is like, we believe in the role of teachers and educators and being a part of this conversation. Wow, that does a great job of illustrating the difficult environment for policymakers to try to navigate as they're learning about AI and implications in any setting. Because like you said, it's cross-disciplinary. It can be applied anywhere. So is there any advice that you might give policymakers recognizing that we're in an environment where we don't always have full access to information Um, Even the experts don't always know how to explain some of the behaviors of AI. What advice might you give a policymaker who's new to this area and and wanting to be thoughtful in how they approach it? Honestly, I think like you and your staff should be using language models in your own work. Understanding what the implications are to society, I think, requires 
that moment of profundity where it clicks and you figure out, oh, this is actually how I can use ChatGPT or Claude or Bard to do this amazing thing that used to take me hours. And that's why we spend a lot of time with teachers trying to show them how to use the tools, because once you understand how it's useful for your own day-to-day -day work, it also defines sort of the parameters of what policy needs to both enable and also what type of outcomes might happen in a world where this is sort of widely distributed and available. So yeah, just like, again, back to learning, just professional learning, like you know, seek it out. Don't rely on lobbyists or experts to just tell you. I think you need to sort of see it and feel it. And for the first time with language models, this is possible. You know, with, with ML, it was a lot more abstract. But with LLMs, it's like, just take it for a spin. I think the other piece is like, you know, policymakers need to be focused on who's going to be at the back of the line. There's a lot of organizations and companies that are not really going to struggle figuring out how to use these tools to like massively expand productivity and profit. The folks we need to be really thinking about are, you know, who are the last people that are going to have an opportunity to learn how language models can benefit them? And what can we do to reach them almost first? Because if we go the way of like broadband and you think about how long it took for us to make broadband widely accessible. And folks in the broadband inclusivity space will say, we're still not done. I mean, even in Ohio, there are rural parts of Ohio that are still waiting for their high-speed broadband, right? And so if it takes us that long, if it takes us a decade to ensure equitable access to these supercars, we're going to be facing a new paradigm of technology-driven inequality that I think people struggle to conceptualize because it's going to be more significant than what we even saw with computers or the internet. It's like a force multiplier on top of all of that stuff. Right. That's great advice to experience it for yourself. And I think that's a really powerful moment for anybody. The first time that they really truly experience interaction with a language model and see firsthand uh, how powerful it can be. You mentioned broadband, and I wanted to bring this up because you've emphasized the importance of AI in schools, likening it to expanding broadband access. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? I mean, broadband access is obviously a significant priority that's getting a lot of attention, a lot of funding at the federal level. It is accelerating um, the adoption, the build out, the infrastructure. Tell us about why AI education should be focused on like broadband. The reason broadband is an interesting example is, you know, I think it's intuitive that everybody should have access to high speed Internet because the internet is primary means of interacting with our economy today. You know, again, it's hard to imagine any type of work, even trade skills where having access to the internet isn't going to give you a significant advantage. And so I think it's important for people to think about AI in the same terms, because this is not about something that software engineers are going to be using. It's more like this is something that everybody has to have access to. And it's not free. You know, this is the other thing. ChatGPT is free, but it's not really free. It's free because OpenAI is putting billions of dollars forward to ensure that they can basically put this in the hands of millions of people and achieve market share. And they're backed by Microsoft and other big investors, but there is a cost. And so as we're thinking about what does it look like for, you know, for example, to make sure that every student has access to language models, you know, someone's going to have to pay for that. And we need to be having that conversation because budget conversations are hard and it's often at the expense of other things. And so, you know, I think bringing people along to why this is important, how this is important and why this needs to be sort of a top priority. I often fall back on analogies that people have familiarity or, or can connect to. Not to end with a pun, but. <laughs> 
I love that. You gave some really good advice for policymakers. What advice would you give to educators and school administrators who are looking to integrate AI into their classrooms but may not know where to start? You know, the most important thing is you start with professional development. The best way that teachers are going to be set up for success is if they understand not just the how, but also the why. Because ultimately what we need is not just like a one-off project that a teacher integrates, but this is something that we need educators to be integrating throughout their day in a sort of laddered and sequential way. And so we're building a lot of projects and and curriculum over the next year that are going to provide that sequencing or the laddering. But for teachers to actually make the investment of time and effort to figure out how it all plugs in, they need to believe that this is actually important and not just the latest tech fad. I'll say it's completely reasonable for somebody to be reading the news and kind of rolling their eyes and saying, been there, you know, we heard about the metaverse, we heard about NFTs and blockchain, you know, why should I trust Silicon Valley that this is really the next wave of the future? But, you know, there wasn't a an executive order about the metaverse is, is one of the things that I have often said is like, there's really good reason to believe that this is fundamentally different. And yes, Silicon Valley has a has a bad track record of uh, overhyping things, but there have been these moments that actually change the world. And, you know, the invention of the computer and the internet and mobile phones are examples of that. And so getting hands on and like really spending the time to learn about the tool and and how it can be used successfully, I think, is the most powerful way to really convince people that this is not just a flavor of the day. You've made an exceptional case for that today. I think the resources on your website are fantastic too and really breaking it down and explaining what you just shared, the importance of this foundational understanding and the why. And we will be happy to link to more information about AIEDU in the show notes as well so that educators can access these resources. And it's really fun and and great to be able to offer those resources to our listeners immediately as something that they can do right away and that they can connect with you and uh, free resources as well. So that's fantastic. I have one final question, then we'll open it up if there's anything else that you'd like to talk about that we didn't cover today. But I'd like to talk briefly about lifelong learning. So a big part of our listenership includes leaders in the business community. And we've had guests on who have talked about implementation in the workplace, in an enterprise environment. If there's one thing that I've learned from interviewing experts in the field, it's that we're all students in the age of AI. So regarding lifelong learning, how can leaders initiate AI education in their workplaces and what might be a practical first step for those who aren't sure where to begin? Okay, so if you're if you're the CEO of a company, you should have a series of people identified who are trying to crack the code on what are some of the ways that these tools can be used in our work. And they should be empowered to experiment. And you probably need to have like some sort of guidelines about, you know, how do we make sure that we're not jeopardizing, you know, let's say, customer information, that there, there should be some clear use policies around uh, how to protect data and IP. But you need to figure those things out and at least let some people get hands on. And ideally, sooner than later, you know, give all your employees the opportunity to just start experimenting. You know, the key ingredients for becoming a good prompt engineer and a prompt engineer for context is, you know, really just the act of how do you ask a language model or design a request or a prompt or a question for a language model in the best way possible to get a desired output. And there are lots of kind of weird aspects to how you frame a request to getting a a certain output. But if you want to become a good prompt engineer, it's not about taking a course and memorizing a bunch of prompts. It's really just two things. It's domain expertise paired with experimentation. 
So you have to be able to experiment and try different things, but you have to also be applying it in a place where you know what a good output looks like. And so I think companies can use that paradigm to, to really think about, okay, are there some areas where we can actually give folks a chance to experiment and try? So that's one thing I think other would be once you identify and validate that this is actually something that is beneficial to some of our employees, making those professional learning opportunities and continuing education opportunities available is going to be extremely important because employees are rightfully going to be concerned about what does it mean if these tools are able to increase productivity by 30%. If I don't have access to the tool or if I don't know how to use the tool, what does that mean for my competitiveness at this company? And so I think making sure that there's ample professional development pathways for folks is it's going to also set you up for competitive success, right? Because then the more, the more your employees are empowered, the more competitive you're going to be. But I think just in terms of retention employees, if they're not learning how to use AI on the job, they probably should be looking for other places where they are going to have those opportunities. Love that. You mentioned domain expertise and experimentation, and that's actually something that's come up across the board when we've talked to leaders about implementation in a workplace setting. That and balancing the challenge of allowing for innovation and experimentation in the workplace while also managing risk. So thank you. This has been a fantastic conversation. We're nearing the end of our conversation, and so we have a couple of questions that we ask all of our guests. First, what most excites you right now about AI? I think it was DeepMind uh, at Google that recently revealed that they had used generative AI to create 700 new materials. And, and this is already, you know, DeepMind built something called AlphaFold, which basically cracked the protein folding problem and was able to, I think, identify 350 million protein structures, which is very hard. I mean, some PhDs, dissertation is on identifying the structure of one protein, right? So this is, these are there are huge developments that are happening in science and research that I think it, it's starting to we're starting to see with more fidelity what it looks like when people say AI can help us solve the most challenging problems that humanity faces. Because if we can design new battery technology, uh, you know, that could be transformative for addressing the climate crisis. If we can develop new antibiotics, that could help us address, you know, one of the biggest challenges facing the healthcare system, which is uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria. And so I really think that's why this is like not so simple as well. AI is dangerous and we need to like, you know, put a stop to it because it could have lots of disparate impacts. Uh, there are there are so many promising opportunities that we we almost have a duty to humanity to make sure that we're figuring out how to harness those upsides. That's incredible. And it's really inspiring. The fact that you have such a leading role in making sure that our next generation of leaders and scientists and innovators has access to and is equipped with the information that they need to take that innovation to the next level. So really, really incredible. Final question, and I'll open it up to you if there's anything that you want to add that we haven't talked about that you think our listeners should know. And if not, any plugs for upcoming events, launches, or anything you'd like to share with our listeners today? So I saw a, a headline, and granted, I, I don't know if this is actually validated by OpenAI, but I, I read somewhere that 99.9% .9 of users are using the free version of ChatGPT. And what that means is you're using GPT 3.5, which is a it's a weaker model. The, it has a smaller data set and the quantity of data is a really big determinant in what the capabilities of the model are. So that means 0.1% really have access and have seen you know, the true power of what these language models are capable of. And that's my call to action is cancel your HBO subscription, like figure out where you can, it's 20 bucks a month. We don't promote any one company or any one tool. 
it is the case that GPT-4 is the most powerful model that currently is available. And so whether you're getting that through OpenAI or through Microsoft, take it upon yourself to really try to experience what the, the most capable models can do. And you know, you'll be able to see what I'm seeing. Because very often when we go and do presentations, we're showing folks demos and it's like, you know, their eyes turn into dinner plates because they're like, oh, I didn't realize that, that you could do this kind of thing with AI. In fact, I did a presentation with the Lieutenant Governor uh, at John Carroll University and I demoed um, Anthropic's new model, Claude 2. It had just been released. And on purpose, I had only started using it 15 minutes before the presentation. And when I gave the presentation, I, I, I said that. I was like, look, guys, I literally just started playing with this. But I did that on purpose because I want you to see this is really not about an AI expert coming and training you on how to use AI. This is about rolling up your sleeves and just taking it for a spin. And so we worked on some some stuff together you know, with the audience. And I think that it's almost like getting on the escalator. It's, it seems really scary at first. You know, it's it's very weird if you've never seen an escalator before. But once someone holds your hand and like you step on, you realize like, oh, this is actually a lot less scary and intimidating than thought. Um, and so I, I would just encourage the same with with language models. Wow. What an incredible way to end our conversation today. I had no idea about the 99.9% figure, but that is fascinating. And it is really cool. For anyone who hasn't used GPT-4 to its fullest extent, it is incredible. And the difference is very noticeable, even for a non-technical expert like myself. So this has been fantastic. Alex, is there any sort of recording to the demo that you did at John Carroll with the Lieutenant Governor or any previous demos that you've done that we can link to in our show notes? Um, no, but I would just encourage folks to reach out to us and get on our website. We have a lot of trainings that are coming up, uh, especially in Ohio, we're working with the Ohio Educational Service Center Association to organize a series of summits across the state. And those summits will include workshops and hands-on opportunities. So I would say just stay tuned for those events and, you know, wherever you are in the country, just, uh, reach out to us and we'll connect you with whatever virtual or in-person presentation is coming up. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Alex. This has been an incredible conversation. I've learned so much and we're really excited to bring these insights to our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Emily. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Workmorphous Wired. If you enjoyed the conversation, please let us know by leaving a rating and review. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, be sure to subscribe. Finally, if you found value in today's discussion, we hope you'll pass the podcast along to a friend or colleague. As always, thanks for tuning out the noise and tuning in to Workmorphous Wired.